0: All right, good morning. Hey, all back there. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Thanks for uh, choosing to worship with us today. Thanks to all of you that have joined us online. Really grateful that you are here. We are in the season of Advent and consequently a sermon series on Advent. And today we will continue that focused on the Advent theme of love. So we started with hope, we've been down the kind of the peace. Uh, theme and uh, and joy. And now today we're going to pick up with uh, love. To do that, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 7 to 10. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. So uh, I hope that you can turn there. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the chair right in front of you. And we're going to kind of walk very slowly through this. I don't think there's anything that any human needs more than to be loved. And beyond that, I don't think that there's anything that a man or woman needs more than to understand the love of God. Uh, Not just to know it, but to experience it, right? There's a difference between knowing and experiencing. Uh, If I want you to experience the Sea of Galilee, let's say, uh, it might be different than if I want you to know about it. If I want you to know about it, I'll sit you in a classroom and say, hey, this is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. It's you know, nine miles wide, 12 miles long, 400 feet deep. This is where Jesus did this and that and the other. And you would know about the Sea of Galilee. But if I want you to experience it, I wanna take you on a boat, put you in the Sea of Galilee, then push you off the boat into the water. So you feel the water. You, you realize, you know, it, it's, it's a tumultuous uh, experience you, or, or stands you kind of waist deep uh, in the water on the bank and you can feel the rocks on your feet and look and, and smell the smells and feel, feel it, right? That's experiencing the Sea of Galilee. It's different than knowing about it. Same thing is true with God's love. We can know God loves us but to experience it is much different. I want to I walk uh, down that path today, if we can. To do that, let's look at 1 John chapter 4, 7 to 10. I'll ask you to stand with me. If you're our guest, we say this phrase, the very words, at the end of the main text reading, just to distinguish God's word from my own. So here is what the scripture says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 10. You can be seated. So uh, just, just by way of framework, the writer of First John is John, the disciple of Jesus. And I think that's important for us to understand, particularly when we begin to think about the love of God, because John walked with Jesus on the planet for th- three years or so. Uh, John is described as one being in the inter- inner circle. Uh, He was beloved by Jesus. So uh, if there's anybody qualified to write to us, to write to the church about the love of God manifest in Jesus Christ, it would be John. So we're learning from somebody who has seen face-to-face, experienced face-to-face the love of God manifest in Jesus today. And, And what I wanna do, as we've talked about this this Advent theme of shalom to chaos, that, that God is constantly bringing shalom, peace, to the chaotic world that we live in, to the chaotic lives that we lead. In fact, he is restoring everything. And at the end, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain anymore because he's brought complete shalom to what is utter chaos because of sin. And he does that. He gives us hope. He gives us peace. He gives us joy But today I want to talk about uh, love in the midst of that chaos. And so I'm just going to break down this passage of Scripture. I want to do three things this morning. One is I want you to understand theologically the love of God. I don't think that'll be news to a lot of you, but to some of you maybe. But secondly, I want you to think about the obstacles in your life for receiving God's love. What keeps you from experiencing God's love And then finally, uh, I I simply uh, want you to be able to think about what you can expect to experience uh, when it comes to a love relationship with God because it it is so much more than often uh, people like you and me Allow ourselves to experience. So, what is true about God's love? We're going to find about five things here in First John chapter four, verse seven and to ten. And if you'll just follow me, the first verse it says, "But beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God." And that's the first thing that is true: is love is from God. Now, every time we see this word love. In this context, we're using the Greek word agape. There's lots of words for love, but agape is the most profane word for love that there is. It's a steadfast love. It's an in-your-face kind of love. It's a pursuing love that always endures, that never runs out, that is that is Unconditional. Okay, so this is the kind of love that we're talking about. And John simply says that kind of love is from God. It comes from no place else. He is the source of agape. He is the source of love. It's from God. And the second thing we learn in verse eight, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. He's not only the source, like the tank filled with love, but he is Love. It's his actual essence. It's who he is. It's his uh, being. In fact, if you are able to love someone unconditionally, John is, John is saying like that kind of love doesn't come from the human heart. That has to come from God. So if you, if you are loving people like this, you know God. But if you're not loving, if you, if you don't know God, you can't love people like this because he's the source and he is love. I mean, it's his very essence. People like to, especially Greek thinkers like us, we like to break, break things down into categories and boxes, right? Like God is loving and he's also wrathful and he's also just and he's, you know, we, we make these kind of compartments for God. When it comes to love, he is love. So his justice, his judgment is not a separate category. His justice or judgment is loving because God is love. His grace is not a separate category. He's, his grace is loving because God is love. Even Even in his righteousness... Is not a separate category. He, he, his righteousness is righteous because he—it's undergirded by perfect love, the source of right, all righteousness. You know, so so he is in in his very being. He is love. Love is from God, and God is love. Now John makes a third observation here, and, and that is this: that God is clearly ha, has clearly revealed his love for us. If you look at verse nine of chapter four. Uh, Verse nine, it says uh, this. "In, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So he has clearly revealed his love to us. He has made his love manifest, meaning that not only is his love sort of an ethereal theological concept that we can think about and know based on our textual observations, even from the Old Testament, that his steadfast love endures forever, that, that he is loved. But he has now shown us, he has demonstrated to us his love, according to John, by giving his son, his only son, whom he loved. He loved. In other words, his love that maybe people knew about became flesh, it was manifest. And you think about this for for just a moment. We're talking about a baby with a common name, born in a very small town in an obscure part of the world, and we're worshiping him. Now, why is that? It's because God gave us prophecy that said, when you see these things happen, you will know that this is my son made manifest before you. And the prophets, it was revealed to them. The disciples, the apostles, they understood it. The, the, the Jews who came to Christ in this moment understood it. And then it became this sign that we look back at now, the manger, the incarnation, the enfleshing of God. And we say, that is his love demonstrated for us. Now, there was this conversation in John chapter three between a Pharisee named Nicodemus and Jesus. Uh, Nicodemus was curious about Jesus, to say the least. He came to Jesus at night, partly, probably because he was a Pharisee. I'm not sure he's wanting to hang out in public yet with Jesus in John chapter three. He's curious. He understands the scriptures He knows the prophecy. He is seeing and hearing of the signs and wonders that Jesus is doing. He's hearing the teaching and the miracles. And he just wants to know who this Jesus is. He's been looking for the Messiah himself. And so he comes to Jesus in the night and he asks a question. The question is like, basically, what do I have to do to get to heaven? And Jesus is, says something really strange. He says, "You've got to be born all over again, Nicodemus. Like your your Pharisaical nature. You know all the law. You know all the prophets. You have really nice long tassels. You keep yourself clean. You do mikvah. All that kind of stuff. You eat right. But you're gonna have to start over. You're gonna have to be born all over again." Nicodemus is very logical in his thinking. How can someone be born all over again? Does he have to go into his mother's womb again? It makes no sense. And Jesus says to him, you're gonna have to be born of water and the spirit. Now, Nicodemus, again, intellectual, scholar, theologian, practitioner of what he believes, is wrestling with this. And and Jesus makes this comment, John chapter three, verse 16. This is the verse, like, have you ever been in a group setting in a church where, you know, you get put in that awkward situation where it's like the leader of the group, whoever, says, hey, uh, we're gonna go around the circle today and everybody just tell us your favorite verse. You ever been in that one? You're like, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't memorized too many. This one, most people have memorized to a degree. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life this is what jesus said to nicodemus i didn't his son didn't come to condemn the world but he was sent because god so loved the world. And, for, and in 1 John, the same John who, who wrote that gospel is now writing in 1 John, the love of God was made manifest among us. This was Jesus' words to Nicodemus, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, that we might be born again, have eternal life. What is true about God's love? Love is from God. God is love, and God has clearly revealed his love for us. Now, we also know From chapter, verse 10 of chapter four, it says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. You realize that God's love is not based on his reaction to your, about your love to him. That's kind of how humans work, right? Like someone shows us love, we love them, we love them back. In, in the ancient times, specifically in the times of these writings, it was kind of, especially among religious people, kind of, tr- it was definitely true that you really loved people who were lovable, but people that were unlovable, you sort of shunned. And if you listen to Jesus' teaching to the Pharisees and the religious types in the, in the Gospels, you'll hear this theme. But God's not like that. God loves People who are unlovable, not as a a reaction to how we loved him, but he initiated it. He's the one that brought the love because he is the source. He is love. It's not a reaction to how we loved him, which has so many implications. It goes on to say this in verse 10, uh, not that Uh, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. I mean, this is like the fifth observation I would make about God's love. God's love for us is shown perfectly in meeting our greatest need. Now, this is that word propitiation that we don't use in the context of conversation ever in in our vernacular. But propitiation is a really special term. It's an important word that says one has delivered us, paid the price, taken our penalty so that we could be in right relationship with God. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He became the propitiation of our sin, He was living mercy and grace. He was the rescuer, the redemption. All of the Everything that we see of Jesus and what he did, meeting our greatest need, this is because love is from God. God is love. He revealed his love for us in his son. His love is not a reaction to how we love to him. Can you imagine Jesus? It says when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said to the people, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they, they're doing. It's, his love is not a reaction to how we love him. And finally, his love for us is shown perfectly in meeting our greatest need. Romans, Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, 8 to 10. I think it's profound in light of the church of Rome. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Like Paul was echoing to the church at Rome. It's not a reaction to how you loved him. He is love and he's pouring it out on you through his son because he reconciled you through his son because of his love, even when he was justifiably wrathful toward you. Because of your sin. And, and, and in fact, anyone who, who, who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is saved like that because God loved. This is all true about God's love. Theologically, uh, very clear that God loves us and it's not, it's not dependent on our, uh, our works, our reaction, our feelings. It's him. He is the source. And he's made, it, made that love manifest through Jesus so, for some of us, that's like sitting in the class and looking at a picture of the Sea of Galilee and learning the data that it's nine miles wide and 12 miles long and 400, 400 feet deep. Like, you, you kind of get it from the text. That's, that's data, that's theological data. It's very true, it's doctrine. But knowing that is different than receiving and experiencing the love of God. It's just different. And I, I, it begs the question, what keeps me from receiving or experiencing the love of God? Well, <clears throat> I'll just be candid. I think we struggle with the love of God, experiencing it at least, because we know we aren't lovable. We know it. Deep down in what my dad used to call your knower. You know you your knower, Son deep down we know i know me better than you know me better than anybody else knows me you know you better than anybody else knows you you know every thought every action every, every everything over the course of your life you know it and and it would be easy probably to surmise like it, 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 maybe in god's economy we aren't lovable at least in our understanding of love. So we think about the holiness of God, the greatness of God, the power of God, the righteousness of God, and then we can contrast that with our weakness, our sin, our knowledge of our own heart, and we struggle. And it's a real struggle for people. Um, It's one thing to say, you know, I know God loves me. It's another thing to experience that love. But the good news is God loves the people who are unworthy of his love, people that justifiably were subject to his wrath. He loved us and sent his son. That's incarnation. That's Christmas. That's why we stop in this moment and look back at that shepherd's cave and that baby born in fulfillment to all the prophecy that would rule and reign, that does rule and reign, that's restoring all things. But there are some things that get in the way of us experiencing the love of our Father. And I just wanna highlight four. There's way more than four, but I wanna highlight four because I think they're common. The first one is unbelief. Unbelief. It's just the 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 tension that, uh, okay, I know the data, everything that he said in First John chapter 4, 7 to 10, I believe that. On one hand, God loves me. On the the other hand, I struggle with believing it's really that good. And the enemy will tell us over and over again, it's not really that good. Your own mind will conclude it can't really be uh, that good. It it can't be that good. And and the, the reality of Scripture is that We are told that we should believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Jesus echoed it to Nicodemus. It really is that good. You can be completely transformed and live an eternal life, have an eternal destiny, a new identity that you never would have had apart from Jesus. It really is that good. He really wants you to be son. He really wants you to be daughter and he's a perfect father he loves you. It's really that good. But we struggle with that because a lot of times uh, in, in the world, we find that kind of love is sparse. Sparse. Love in the world is dependent on a, a lot of things. It's complicated. Here, uh, we really can believe that Jesus is the manifestation of God's love. And the gospel is just that good. Now, the second thing that kind of gets in our way, unbelief, maybe first, second, is what I would call a father wound. So it's scandalous in one way to think the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? Do you think the disciples, these, these, these Jewish guys, do you think they didn't know how to pray? they had, probably had the Torah memorized. They probably have been praying the Psalms uh, and the Amida their their whole lives. They wanted to know how to pray because it seemed like Jesus had a different connection to God in prayer than everybody else. So how do we pray? And Jesus says this scandalous first phrase. When you pray, pray this way, our Father. Okay, that doesn't, that doesn't seem unique to us. We've been saying our Father's, For a long time now. But to them, it was very unique because a Jew could understand the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. Uh, I can understand that I can't go that far into the temple because I'm not the high priest, that God dwells behind the curtain, the Ark of the Covenant is there, in the Holy of Holies, and I've got to watch just to go into the temple. I've got to eat right just to go into his presence. I, I, I know that he loves me in a covenant way that he's made promises, but to call him Abba... Father, that's scandalous. That's very close. That's intimate. And Jesus says, like, pray this way, our Father. Well, we hear that, that would be a gift. Like, okay, I have access. We hear that. And sometimes we have father wounds. Not everybody in the room, but some people. And so we look at those father wounds and we think to ourselves, well, I'm not sure I trust God completely because maybe he will abandon me. I'm not sure if I tell him everything that's going on inside of here that he will accept me. Maybe he'll be disappointed. Maybe he'll, you know, strike me with a lightning bolt or some kind of weird thing, you know, because I'm used to not receiving grace or mercy in the context of my uh, own uh, father relationship. Uh, Or maybe I just think I have to perform because of that. Like maybe you're the, you're the kid that grew up and like if you got an A, uh, nothing was said, but if you got a B, uh, you're in big trouble, you know? If you didn't score, you know, maybe, maybe it was a performance-based uh, kind of thing. And so uh, we have this maybe father wound. There's lots of reasons you could have a, a father wound, uh, but, but Jesus is saying, it, it, it may sound scandalous, but you should get so close, close that you call him father. And he's a perfect father. He's not like all the other fathers. I'm not a perfect father. He is a perfect father. So unbelief and father wound, they kind of get in the way. The third thing that kind of gets in the way of our ability to receive God's love is what I'm just going to categorize as idols, right? And you're like, I don't have any golden statues in my backyard. This is anything that you bow down to and worship, that isn't God. Now, you, again, you may be like backpedaling, like, ah, I don't do that. Just, just follow the money and the time. Follow the intent of your heart, the thing that your mind craves, what you think about most often, and ask yourself, do I have any idols? Idols, they, they do two things. They rob you of receiving God's love because you're going to a place where you'll never find love. And spending all your time there instead of sitting with Jesus in the open scripture, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you where you find love every time. So we're just going the wrong place. That's the problem with idols. They, they, they rob us of love and they rob us of joy. But that's a different sermon. So we have to, the, the Bible is all about like tearing down these idols in our lives and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's, it's receiving love by being in his presence, by being intimate with our father. And then the fourth sort of obstacle is what I would call works-based religion, a works-based religion. All religions in the world are works-based except one, and that's true Christianity, did you realize that? Every other religion, you've got you to gotta work your way to God. Somehow, some way, you've got to work your way to God. True Christianity says there's nothing you could do. It's not by works, but it's your faith, your belief in a God who is loving. He is, he is love himself. He is the source, and he has met your greatest need by making his love manifest through his son, Jesus, who died on a cross to save you from your sins. And he did that because he loves you. And you can't. There's no amount of work you can do. People, and we, you would say, maybe you would say, like, we believe that, but there are people that are working their way, like, from hard trying to get in good graces with God. You know, their motives are like uh, everything from serving the coffee to being the pastor, trying to earn their way to God, to perform their way to God. If I could just be a life group leader, maybe God will let me into his heaven. It'd be a great recruiting tool, but it's not that way. It's not that way. You know, there's nothing you could do to earn it. And that's the really good thing because his love is unconditional. And if you know of his love, it's because he pursued you. And that is awesome. So workspace really just sort of gets in the way. I'll let you know, and it's just like, uh, let me just bare my soul to you for a moment. Um, I... Have struggled with throughout my life, not knowing that God loves me, but receiving His love. For sure. And one of the darkest times of my life, I was in a counseling session. It was more like an intercessory prayer session in that moment. This person was praying over me. It was very biblically uh, grounded. We were praying through a passage of scripture and actually just receiving what God says. In that, and the counselor said this thing to me that opened something in my heart, and and just just the emotion, the experience of God's love uh, poured out. I was in a very dark place in my life. Everything was hard. Everything seemed uh, not right. Like we were experiencing severe injustice, and. Uh, my flesh was crying out like, God, I'm not, I'm not sure that you really love me like you said you did. Has anybody ever been there? It's just me. And I was wanting to act out of character. Like, I'll do whatever I want then. Anybody ever been there? And I'm in this counseling session, and we're praying, and, and it is definitely, man, it was one of those moments where the Holy Spirit was in the room, and uh, this counselor just said, from the text, like, you're his son. He loves you, and he's proud of you. And for me, like, that just, uh, emo- so much emotion came up. Why? I know I'm his son. It wasn't that. I, I know that he loves me. It wasn't that. He's proud of me. It was that, not because of anything except I'm his son, and the reason that I received that and, and, and it just bubbled up inside of me as as emotion, and I received his love in a new way that day is because before then, I would try to perform my way into a right relationship with God. See, I did grow up in a culture where you you. You perform and you get accolade for that, even in the context of church. What I'm telling you, what I learned and what I'm telling you based on life experience and the true doctrine of God's love is that he loves you. There's nothing you can do to earn it. And there's nothing you could ever do that would keep him from loving you. Nothing will change it. He loves you. He loves your neighbor. He loves your enemy. He loves you. I mean, this, the, the Bible is screaming manifest in Jesus the Messiah. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And we should receive that. And the people that are the most healthy spiritually, most connected with God spiritually, are not, it's not that they just know of God's love it's that they receive it (laughs) and they experience it consistently. So last question, what can I expect to experience because of God's love? Here's what we know from the scripture and I'd say these are all true in my life. I, I, I would vouch for these from personal experience. What can I expect to experience because God is love? Number one, we know God will be with you. So he says in Isaiah chapter seven fourteen, prophesying the coming of Jesus to be born. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is how you will know. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus walking the planet, God with us. Holy Spirit now inside of us, God with us. At the restoration of all things, when you pass away and go to heaven in Christ, or whether heaven comes down first, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, all the old is past and the new has come, whichever it is, God with us. And no matter what you're going through, he will never leave you. The Bible says he will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, so those of you that have an abandonment issue You got to know this God, this Father is one who will never abandon you. He will never, ever abandon you. He will be with you. Now, with each one of these truths, there is a lie. The enemy tries to tell us lies about God. And the lie here is that God will abandon you. if, if If you let him in, if it gets bad enough, he will abandon you. But that is not true according to the Scripture nor my life experience. God will be with you. His name is Emmanuel. Second thing that we can expect to experience because of God's love, his love will never, ever be contingent on your performance. His love will never, ever be contingent on your performance. The scripture says it's it's not by works. His love is just because of who he is, not, not because of anything that you did the enemy will try to tell you, and it makes a lot of sense in our flesh. You need to earn it. You need to earn it. That is absolutely untrue. It's a holistic lie. When the truth is, his love will never be contingent on your performance. You can neither... Uh, cause it from him to you, nor can you lose it once you have received it. It's all about him. His love will never be contingent on your performance. Third thing, you can expect intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. Now, again, that's different than knowing God, knowing about God, hearing some things and being able to, to fill in the blanks. That's one thing, but intimacy with God is the kind of relationship that you actually, you hear him. You walk with him. You sense his presence in your life because of the power of his spirit. No matter what your circumstances are, highs or lows, he's with you and you can be intimate with him. Uh, It's the simplest approach. You just sit and you say, I want to spend time with you. And you pray, you talk to him in conversational ways and you open his scripture and listen to what he has to say to you and he speaks to you. And you do that Day in, day out, for a long period of time, what you're going to find is that he is uh, the place, the person you want to be with the most. You can be intimate with him. You can hear his voice and walk in the way he wants you. The enemy will tell you, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't get intimate with God because if you let him in, he will be somewhere between disappointed to destructive with you because you deserve it. That's what the enemy will say. When all along we know the scripture is saying, no, that's not true, that he loves you. He knows what you've done. He knows who you are and he gave himself for you anyway because he, he loves you. He, you can be intimate with God and you can trust him enough to, to allow him to become close. John 15 verse nine, Jesus said, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love hang out there, just sit in it, remain in it, be at home in it. All of that's connotated in that word abide, abide in my love. Um, We are meant to have intimate relationship with God. So we can expect it if we go to him. Uh, Fourth thing we can expect in a relationship with God because of his love, an unending supply of perfect love. There's no end to it, according to the scripture. This is a steadfast love that endures forever. The lie the enemy would tell you is that if you do certain things or think certain thoughts, he will stop loving you. And the reality is, the scripture teaches that this, Psalm 136, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The scripture teaches that nothing can separate you from the love of God. It never runs out. It's not a tank that will run dry at some point. It never runs out because God is love. It is an unending supply of perfect love and you can expect it. That's why many of us know in the room, we know we have had to go back to Jesus so many times begging for mercy and grace and it never runs out. Because his love never runs out. See, if you buy the lie, you just won't go back to God. The lie that, that maybe he'll be d- disappointed, maybe, maybe to, to the point of destruction. You just buy the lie. Have you ever heard someone say, like, I, I, I just can't, can't even pray right now. I don't even want to open my Bible right now. That's, that's indicative of a trust issue. That's what, what's underlying there. It's like, I don't trust God right now to deal with my heart the way that it is. And the reality is that he has an unending supply of perfect love and he is the perfect father. Fifth thing, and this is is super important. Have have any of you ever made a a promise to your child that you did not keep? Please say yes. Please don't don't, don't let me be the only, only one. All right, so when we moved here in 2010, we were moving from Katy to, uh, to here. And uh, I told my kids, hey, kids, gather around. We're moving. Nobody wants to move. Has anybody ever uh, been there too? Nobody wants to move. We're deeply ingrained. We love it over there. Our family's there. Friends are there. All that kind of stuff. I say, like, oh, I need some, something to entice the emotion. So I say, either we're going to get a pool or a dog. <laughs> One of the two. When we move there and we didn't. We actually have a pool, but this house was built in 1966, and they buried the pool in like 1983. It just, so I always tell them, like, if we dig deep enough, that pool is here. <laughs> Technically, I kept my promise. No, I didn't. I didn't keep my promise. We didn't get a dog. We had One of our kids had some allergy issues right after we moved here, and it was like, so we didn't get a dog. Eventually, I kept my promise. Eventually, we got this hypoallergen—how do you say it? Hypoallergenic dog that has like real hair that you have to trim off. He doesn't shed, and all this kind of stuff. It worked eventually, but I didn't keep my promise. And my kids let me live in that from time to time. It's feeble. It's funny. God has never made a promise He didn't keep. Your Heavenly Father, he has never made a promise he didn 't keep, and the ones that aren 't fulfilled yet he will keep because he keeps all his promises and This is the fifth big observation about his love he he 's the perfect lover because he makes promises that he keeps, and that is because of his love that 's who he is, and that 's what we have the opportunity to receive. See, it's one thing to know about his love. It's another thing to receive it. Um, I dare you. I double dog dare you. Double dog dare you. Who has to do it if they get double dog dared? I have to, have to most of the time, but I, I, I do. Sit in a quiet place and ask God to pour out his love on you and, and wait. I double dog dare you. I'm going to ask you next week. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and um, and then a- after I pray, the worship team is going to come, and you're going to be tempted to jump to your feet and sing or run out the door or whatever you you have to do at that moment every week. But this week, we're going to sing over you, and we just simply want you to stop and listen to the words, and receive God's love. So don't, don't bolt. Don't stand to your feet when I say amen. Just receive, okay? Will you pray with me? Father, uh, we love you. And it's not because somehow we, we've mustered up the ability to love you, but it's because you first loved us. It's because you made your love manifest in Jesus and because we know we need a rescuer and that you have done it in Christ. Thank you for the Advent season. Thank you for the ability to look back at the incarnation, that baby born of a virgin in a shepherd's cave in Bethlehem and know that was you fulfilling the sign that we might see your manifest love. Lord, we don't want to be people who just know the data, just the doctrine, just the theology. We don't want to be able to pass a test. Only we want to be able to receive and experience your love, to know what it's like. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, for everyone here, for anyone who ever hear this teaching. God, will you open their eyes and their ears and their mind and their heart to receive your love? Tear down the idols. Help them to believe, crush a works-based religion in their life. Heal their father wounds. Help them to receive. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.